The Catechism of the Catholic Church tells us that the existence of the spiritual, corporeal beings that sacred scripture usually calls angels is a truth of faith. Now, regarding this truth, the Catechism adds that the witness of scripture is as clear as the unanimity of tradition. Writing more than 700 years earlier, St. Thomas Aquinas acknowledged this truth as a believing Catholic, but he also acknowledged it as a philosopher, since he held that the existence and something of the nature of angels can be discovered by natural reason. And so, over the course of his career, he complements his theological consideration of the angels with a distinctly philosophical consideration of them. It's this philosophical consideration that I will discuss today, addressing what Aquinas thinks we can discern about the angels independently of revelation. Now, when we begin to talk about angels in this way, a well-worn question frequently pops into people's minds. So, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? The origin of this question is by all accounts uncertain. But even though the question's provenance is unclear, its intent is all too clear, namely, to satirize the thought and methodology of scholastic authors such as Aquinas. The question, therefore, is itself intended to be dismissive. But I intend not to be dismissive of it in turn, rather, my intention in this talk is to directly engage what is asked about that pin's head, and I will do so to make a point. Namely, that from the consideration of objects such as pins and their heads, which are material, Aquinas thinks that we're justified in drawing conclusions about an aspect of re reality that some would say could not be pinned down, namely, the immaterial. Now, to be clear, neither Aquinas nor any other scholastic thinker ever directly raised the question about angels in relation to the head of a pin. Still, we can nevertheless find something of an answer to it in his writings, and in the course of searching for this answer, we will have a better understanding not only of his philosophy of the angels, but also of his metaphysical thought in general. So to begin with, we should first familiarize ourselves with Aquinas' terminology. The name angel is derived from the Greek word angelos, meaning messenger. And Aquinas tells us that the angels are called such because they make divine things known to human beings, as Gabriel did at the Annunciation. Unlike Mary, however, we know of their role as messengers only through revelation. For that reason, Aquinas tends to reserve the name angel for theological considerations of these beings. When referring to them in more philosophical contexts, he employs a number of other names. Most commonly, he refers to them as separate substances, but also at times spiritual substances, divine things, necessary beings, and intelligences. The significance of each of these names will become apparent 
as we proceed to consider his thought in more detail. In his work entitled On the Separate Substances, Aquinas examines the merits of different philosophical accounts of these beings. Looking at the writings of both pagan thinkers, such as Plato and Aristotle, as well as Islamic thinkers, such as Avicenna and Averroes, Aquinas sees accounts of the beings that Christians identify as angels. Although he doesn't agree with everything these philosophers have to say about these beings, Aquinas nevertheless thinks that, to varying degrees, all of them convey some truth about angels. And looking at their thought, Aquinas adopts what he finds to be of merit, integrating it into his own philosophical account. His notion of angelic nature is rooted in a basic Aristotelian understanding of reality. Following Aristotle, Aquinas holds that the material things of our experience consist of more than just material parts. Consider, for example, two dogs, Fido and Rover. Fido is a Great Dane and Rover is a Chihuahua. The two differ significantly in shape and size, but they share some very basic features in common. They both have the same kind of doggy nature. That nature, Aquinas contends, can't be explained merely by their material parts. Rather, something other than those parts is needed to explain how those parts are structured or organized. How is it, we might ask, that the matter in both dogs is organized in such a way that these two distinct individuals nevertheless are both the same kind of thing? Today, people would commonly answer this question by saying that the organizing principle here is the DNA. If Aquinas were alive now, he would likely respond to this answer by asking, but how do we explain the organization of that DNA itself, since it too is made up of material parts? In short, his general point is that within a material being, something other than matter is needed to account for the organization of that matter. Following Aristotle, he calls this organizing principle form. Form is what gives Fido and Rover their nature as dogs. Each of them has his own form structuring his matter, but the key thing is that both have the same kind of form. So even though there are many material or physical differences between the two dogs, formally they are the same kind of thing. And as it is for dogs, so it is for all material things, including human beings, plants, and even inanimate things such as minerals. As may well be familiar to many of you, philosophers refer to this Aristotelian theory regarding the union of form and matter as hylomorphism, from the Greek word hule, meaning matter, and morphe, meaning form. Now Aquinas holds that just as dogs, such as Fido and Rover, have forms, so too do angels, such as Gabriel and Michael. They must have forms because if they exist at all, angels have a nature or essence. And that's exactly what form provides. To be more precise, however, 
Aquinas doesn't hold that angels have forms, but rather that they are forms. The same can't be said of Fido and Rover. For them, their forms are only part of what they are as dogs, since matter is an essential part of them as well. Without matter, they couldn't do the kind of things that dogs do, such as chase cars, bark at mailmen, and bury bones. By contrast, angels have no matter in them. They are immaterial beings. So Aquinas concludes that angels must be pure forms. Here again, his account is Aristotelian, for Aristotle had described just such formal beings in his work, The Metaphysics. It's because they exist separately from matter that Aristotle, and Aquinas following him, terms them separate substances. Moreover, Aquinas himself explains that separation from matter is what is indicated by the term spirituality. It is for this reason that he refers to the angels as spiritual substances. And, for the same reason, these beings must be divine. Thus he calls them at times divine things. So far, all of what I have described may sound familiar and thoroughly reasonable. If angels aren't physical beings, it seems to make perfect sense that they must be pure forms. But in Aquinas' day, this position was in fact rather controversial. Most of his contemporaries, including the eminent Saint Bonaventure, insisted that all created beings must be composed of form and matter, including angels. Scholars refer to this position as universal hylomorphism. Now, to be clear, this is not to say that its defenders, such as Bonaventure, denied the incorporeal or spiritual nature of angels. Rather, these advocates of universal hylomorphism held that the type of matter in angels is a different sort of matter than corporeal matter. It was what they termed spiritual matter. To speak of spiritual matter might sound odd, but the advocates of this theory had good reason to question Aquinas's position. To begin with, if the angels are pure forms, it seems as though there can't be more than one angel. Why this seems to be the case will be clearer if we consider how it is that corporeal things are diversified. Consider Fido and Rover again. As I mentioned, what makes both of them members of the same dog species is that they both have the same kind of form, a dog form. Since the form is what makes each of them such, dog, it's not what makes either distinctly this, Fido or Rover, which is to say that their form doesn't account for their individuality. Instead, the hylomorphic account holds that what makes Fido and Rover and all material things individuals is their matter. Because of his form, Fido is a dog. Because of his matter, Fido is this dog. Thus Aquinas sees matter as an individuating principle for corporeal things. But he also sees it as a diversifying principle. 
The reason that there can be many dogs is precisely that the form of dog is present in many distinct quantities of matter. Just as there can be many gingerbread men with the same shape because that shape is present in different quantities of dough. Now, for the advocate of universal hylomorphism such as Bonaventure, a parallel account is offered to explain the individuation and diversification of the angels. There are many different angels, the argument goes, because the form of angel is present in each angel's distinct spiritual matter. But Aquinas rejects universal hylomorphism and this notion of spiritual matter as philosophically problematic. I won't get into all of the details here. Suffice it to say, it might seem then that Aquinas's position would allow for the existence of only one angel, since an angelic form could not be multiplied. And in fact, this turns out to be Aquinas's position, <clears throat> in a way. He fully grants that as a pure form, an angelic form or nature can't be multiplied. But he doesn't see this as a problem. Aquinas simply responds that there are many different angels because each one exhausts and is unique in its species. In the truest sense of the expression, each angel is one of a kind. By contrast, with material things such as Fido and Rover, there can be a multiplicity of individuals in the species because the same kind of form can be received again and again in different quantities of matter. Since an angel is pure form, Aquinas concludes that the individual angel must be identical with its nature. Unlike Fido, who is an individual that belongs to the species dog, Gabriel is an individual who belongs to the species Gabriel. Whereas Fido has dogness, Gabriel is, for want of a better term, Gabriality. And since the individual who is Gabriel is identical with his Gabriality, no other angel can share it. And the same can be said of Michael and his Michaelness. So, in response to the proponents of universal hylomorphism, Aquinas grants that there can't be many different angels belonging to the same species. And yet, he insists that there can be and are many angels, namely as different species, many pure forms, each of which is one of a kind. Although Aquinas resolves the question of angelic multiplicity in this somewhat straightforward way, the advocates of universal hylomorphism think that his position poses a still greater problem. As all good Christian theologians and philosophers of the time agreed, only God is perfectly simple since, as the cause of all complexity, he alone stands above all multiplicity and complexity. If Aquinas is right, it seems that as pure forms, the angels would also be perfectly simple. Since that isn't possible, indeed is heretical, the objection goes that angels must be composed of form and spiritual matter. 
Now, Thomas Aquinas, being a good Christian theologian and philosopher, fully acknowledged that God alone is perfectly simple. His response to these opponents was to embrace all the more the position that the angels are simple. But simple only in a certain respect, in a qualified sense, namely as forms. It is precisely from that perspective that these beings are not perfectly or entirely simple. To understand Aquinas' position, consider again the angels Gabriel and Michael. Both are beings, each with a distinct identity. One is not the other, and neither of them is anything else. Now it's true, as I've noted, that each exhausts the fullness of its essence and species. Nevertheless, Aquinas explains, neither exhausts the fullness of existence. Gabriel isn't simply a Gabriel, he's a being, something that exists. And to exist in a Gabriel way is not to exist in a Michael way or in any other way. In short, Gabriel, Michael, or any other angel is merely one limited expression of the fullness of existence. That means that even though each angel is identical with its essence, Gabriel is Gabriality, no angel is identical with its own existence. Gabriel is not existingness itself. For this reason, Aquinas concludes that each angel's existence must be something other than, in addition to, its form. In short, each angel is this existing form. In the very way we phrase it, there is the intimation of composition, existing form. And so even though an angel is simple in the sense that it's not composed of form and matter, nevertheless it is complex in the sense that its form is composed with its existence. In this way, Aquinas resolves the problem of angelic simplicity in terms of his famous distinction between essence and existence, or in Latin, esse. Only in God is there no composition of the two, because only God is pure existence by his very essence. And that is why God is perfectly simple, Aquinas explains, not because he is pure form. Indeed, as pure existence, God is beyond form. Drawing these distinctions between God and the angels, Aquinas shows that it is indeed possible for some created beings to exist as pure forms, entirely separate from matter. Still, to show that their existence is possible is not the same as to show that they do in fact exist. Aquinas, of course, as a faithful Christian, believed that they do, but he also wanted to prove their existence philosophically. So, over the course of his career, he presented several arguments to this end. Now, I'm not going to go through all of these arguments, but suffice it to say that what he considered to be his strongest arguments are based upon a common theme. So instead, I'll simply present to you the basic pattern of his line of reasoning. Aquinas points out that when we look at the things around us, we notice a great ladder of being, 
a hierarchy of things in the universe from lesser to greater nobility. For example, minerals like metals and stones have a very basic sort of existence. They're present in the world, but they don't act in the world so much as react to it. Plants stand above them on the ladder. Although plants contain minerals in them, they have a richer existence than the mere matter constituting them because plants are alive. As living things, they do more than simply react to their environment. They interact with it through such activities as nourishment, growth, and reproduction. Animals have a still richer manner of existence. Possessing the same basic traits as minerals and plants, not only do they interact with the world, but they're capable of connecting with it to form an internal life, namely through sensory knowledge. Next on this ladder of being stands the human person, who in a way possesses all of these perfections of these lower beings, but again, in a significant way, stands above them. Like other animals, human beings have sensory knowledge, but unlike them, we have, in addition, intellectual knowledge, knowledge that goes beyond mere sensations of the world to penetrate to an understanding of the very essences or natures of things. As Aquinas explains, this human ability is possible because, in addition to our material body, we also possess an immaterial soul. Why Aquinas sees a connection between intellectual knowledge and immateriality, I'll explain in a moment. For now, suffice it to say that on the ladder of being, human beings are unique because we are a composition of the material and the immaterial. We are, in a way, a metaphysical amphibian. Still, this status doesn't rank human beings at the top of the ladder of being. Above us, of course, is God himself, who, in his divine nature, is purely immaterial and is the cause of all other beings. And as before, this higher being possesses what all the lower beings have, yet more profoundly. As those, all those perfections had by his creatures, God has in an immaterial, simple, and unified way. Now, I should, I should note that Aquinas thinks God's existence can also be proven philosophically, but unfortunately I don't have time to consider those arguments here. Looking at this ladder of being, Aquinas next points out that, as presented so far, it seems incomplete. I listed three basic types of beings. Number one, created beings that are material. Number two, created beings that are a composition of the material and the immaterial. Number three, an uncreated being that is purely immaterial. Aquinas contends that one class of beings is clearly missing. It is as if in listing these beings I had counted from one to ten and left out the number nine. In the very skipping of the number, it's obvious that it should be there. Regarding the ladder of being, what he thinks is left out from the list as I've presented it are created immaterial beings. Still, even though I may have neglected them at first count, Aquinas contends that God did not. In short, what he argues is 
that we can conclude to the existence of angels because such immaterial beings are needed for the perfection of the universe. Like a Christmas tree without an angel to top it off, the created universe would also be incomplete without the angels to top it off. In short, their existence is in some way necessary. <clears throat> Aquinas is careful to note, however, that their existence is not absolutely necessary. In other words, God didn't have to create them just as he didn't have to create us. Nothing can force God's hand. Instead, he explains that the existence of angels is conditionally necessary. To illustrate what he means by conditional necessity, Aquinas gives the example of a house. Given the condition that a builder freely chooses to build a house, he needs to provide it with its essential parts, such as walls and a roof. And similarly, given the condition that God has freely chosen to create this universe, it was necessary for him to provide it with its own essential parts. And, Aquinas argues, we can infer from the order of the universe, which we experience, and God's goodness, which we can prove, that just as minerals, plants, animals, and humans are essential parts, so too are created immaterial beings, namely the angels. The philosophical question that next arises is whether this line of reasoning provides what philosophers refer to as a demonstrative or demonstrative argument, one that proves its conclusion definitively, or whether it provides a merely probable argument whose conclusion is merely likely but not definitive. From his language, Aquinas himself does seem to view his line of reasoning as demonstrative. It is a conditional necessity, he tells us, that follows not from a lack of freedom on God's part, or from his power, or even from his goodness, but rather from the order of his wisdom. Now, my personal thought, however, is that it is merely a probable argument, since we don't have the vantage point of knowing God's wisdom directly. God's ways are not our ways, so since we don't have that vantage point, we can't know for sure. But at the very least, I think Aquinas has shown philosophically that it is not only reasonable to conclude that such immaterial beings exist, but that God himself had good reason to have made them. Having considered his views regarding the immateriality of the angels, we are now in a better position to begin to answer the question, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? It should be clear by now that since angels don't have any bodies, it's impossible for angels to waltz, tango, or perform any other dance moves anywhere, much less on a pin. So let's consider instead a slightly more serious phrasing of this question, namely, how many angels can fit on the head of a pin? As before, Aquinas doesn't directly address this phrasing of the question any more than he does its prior phrasing. But he does consider whether an angel can be in a place, and in doing so, he provides some insight into how to answer our question. Aquinas notes, first of all, that we need to understand what it means to be in a place. Take yourself, 
as an example. You are here in this room. The reason that you can be in a place such as that is due to the fact that you have a body and quantitative dimensions. This enables you to be contained by the surrounding area which itself possesses quantitative dimensions. And that area containing you is an example of a place. Given this notion of place, it should be clear that angels can't be in a place at all. Since they're immaterial, they don't possess any dimensions that can be contained by any surrounding area. Since the head of a pin would constitute a place, we can conclude from Aquinas' reasoning that the number of angels that could fit there must be zero. Angels can't fit on anything. It seems then as though we've answered our question. But in fact, as is often the case with Aquinas, there's more to the story. When he himself would answer a question, Aquinas frequently responded in his trademark scholastic way, in Latin, seek et non, which is to say, well, in a certain way, yes, and in another way, no. And he offers just such a response to the question whether an angel can be in a place. No, he tells us, it can't be in a place in the sense of being contained by that place, since an angel doesn't have a body. But he also says that, yes, it can be in a place in another sense. To figure out what this other sense is, and therefore to calculate how many angels can actually fit on the head of a pin, we need to examine further Aquinas' philosophical account of angelic nature. Considering the immateriality of angels, Aquinas deduces several other important attributes that he thinks they must possess. Since they're immaterial, they differ significantly from the physical things all around us. Those things will all eventually corrupt and go out of existence. Animals and plants will die. Wood will decompose. Even mountain ranges rise and fall. Aquinas explains that the reason these material things have the potential for corrupting in this way is precisely that they are material. If we consider the Aristotelian doctrine of hylomorphism again, matter is always formed in some way, but that matter can always take on a new and different form. Because all material things have this potential for corruption built within them, Aquinas refers to these types of beings as contingent beings. Their existence is contingent or dependent upon the continued presence of their form in their matter. Once the matter breaks down sufficiently, the form will no longer remain, and neither will that being. Since angels have no matter, we can conclude that they have no potency for corruption. In short, they can't die or go out of existence. Given the kind of things that they are, by their natures, they must continue to exist. That's why, following Aristotle and the Arabic philosopher Avicenna, Aquinas at times refers to the angels as necessary beings. Still, he's careful to note the sense in which their existence is necessary. God can also be called a necessary being, because he too can't go out of existence. 
but God derives his necessity entirely from himself. By contrast, the necessity of an angel is not from itself, but from God, since he created the angel as the kind of thing that it is. And since the angel's necessity was given to it by God, God can also take that necessity away, which is to say that God can annihilate the angel. Nevertheless, Thomas tells us that because of his goodness, God just won't do that. Another attribute that Aquinas deduces from the angel's immateriality is its intelligence. To understand why angels must be intelligent, we need to briefly consider Aquinas' account of knowledge. Even the most basic animal has a kind of knowledge. Fido, for example, can recognize his master's voice and respond to his commands. But all of Fido's knowledge is based simply upon sensory cognition. It's a knowledge of concrete, particular things. This is obvious in a case where Fido is smelling a particular smell on a particular tree. But even when he's responding to his master's voice by using his memory and imagination, he's recalling a concrete, particular image. He doesn't understand the full significance of his master's words because language conveys more than what is concrete and particular. Human beings have the same sort of sensory knowledge that Fido has, but we also have a higher type of knowledge, namely intellectual knowledge. We're capable of knowing, for example, not just this dog, Fido, but what all dogs share in common. In other words, we're able to understand, in a universal way, the nature of what it means to be a dog. We're able to grasp the form of a thing, and that form isn't something that can be sensed. Unlike sensory knowledge, therefore, universal knowledge must be abstract, which is to say that it must be immaterial. It's true that the concept of dog or dogness refers back to physical dogs that we're able to see and touch, but the concept itself is not a physical thing. You can't see dogness. You can't touch dogness. And what Aquinas maintains is that such immaterial concepts can be present in the mind only if the mind itself is immaterial as well. Since the angels are immaterial beings, Aquinas concludes that they too must engage in this immaterial activity of intellectual knowing. Unlike us, however, they don't have sensory knowledge because they don't have bodies or a brain. So their knowledge is entirely intellectual, and it's for this reason that Aquinas sometimes calls the angels intelligences or intellects, following Pseudo-Dionysius and Avicenna. As purely intellectual beings, they don't acquire knowledge the way we do. When we're born, our minds are like a blank slate. We need to acquire our knowledge of the world by experiencing it, and we experience it by sensing it. But the angels don't learn in this way. Without sense organs, they can't learn in this way. Unlike us, they aren't born with a blank slate for a mind. In fact, they aren't born at all. Rather, they're immediately created by God with their ideas, as it were, built into their very natures. And in considering these ideas, they understand not only spiritual things like other angels, but even physical things like Fido, Rover, you, and me. 
Their knowledge, furthermore, is much more powerful than ours is. Since we do need to learn things from sense experience, we need to reason things through step by step. That's why Aquinas calls us rational animals. We are animals that reason discursively. But angels aren't animals, and neither do they reason. As pure intellectual beings, they can grasp a whole argument at a single glance. Furthermore, just as the angels have higher cognitive powers than we do, Aquinas holds that some angels have higher powers than do others. As you'll recall, I noted earlier that no two angels belong to the same species. But the difference between any two angels is not merely a difference in kind. Since they are entirely immaterial, the only way for one to be formally different from another is for it to be of a greater or lesser nobility than the other. That's why Aquinas identifies a hierarchy among the angels. And this hierarchy isn't merely in terms of the nine choirs presented in scripture. Those choirs of angels, he tells us, are based upon the offices or roles that God assigns to them. Rather, in their natures, the angels all differ from one to the next. So Aquinas holds that there must be as many ranks of angels as there are individuals. So when we continue up the ladder of being after human beings, each angel occupies its own rung. From the angel's immateriality, Aquinas deduces truths not only about their knowledge, but also about their desires. Since they don't have bodies, neither do the angels have the sort of bodily desires that we have. That means that they don't have emotions. They can't have lust or fear, be angry or sad. But they do have another sort of desire that we humans have, namely an intellectual desire. This is nothing other than what we commonly call the will. Since angels are pure intellects, they too must have wills. And since the sort of judgment an intellectual being can make is freely made, their wills must also be free. We now have a better picture of Aquinas' account of angelic nature, and this will help us to see how these immaterial beings can interact with the material world, in turn revealing how angels could, in any sense of the word, be on a material thing like the head of a pin, such that we could count them. When Aquinas considered how the angels are related to the rest of the universe, one possibility that he addressed is that they somehow act as creative causes. This was the view of the Islamic philosopher Avicenna. Aquinas, however, rejects this sort of role for the angels, not only because it's theologically erroneous, but also because it's philosophically unsound. To create is to be the cause of being as such. It's to produce something out of absolute nothingness, ex nihilo. When finite beings make things, they always make them out of pre-existing material. Carpenters make chairs out of wood. Chickens make chickens out of eggs. No finite being, no limited being, can make something out of absolutely nothing because to do so, Aquinas contends, would require an infinite power. But as I've already noted, 
No angel exhausts the fullness of existence. Rather, each and every angel exists in a limited or finite way. And so they're finite beings with finite powers. Only God, as the fullness of existence itself, is infinite. So Aquinas concludes, only God has the kind of causal power required to create. Still, he holds that in other ways, angels can and do act as influences in the world. The question arises, however, how an immaterial being could interact with the material? How could a spirit act on a body? To answer this question, he asks us first to consider the human soul, which bears some similarities to angels, but also differences. The noteworthy difference is that even though the human soul can exist apart from the body, namely after death, that state of separation is not its natural condition. Following the Aristotelian doctrine of hylomorphism, Aquinas is clear that the complete human person is a union of soul and body, in which the soul is the form of the body. As he famously states, I am not my soul, provocatively indicating simply that his soul is not the whole of him. A human person is a composition of soul and body together. So all of this is to say that humans are not immaterial beings. Still, even though the whole of us is not immaterial, that part of us that is the soul is. As Aquinas explained, the human soul can be called immaterial because it is is where the intellect is located. And it is by means of this intellective soul that we are able to command our very body. For example, I can think to myself, it would be good to move my right arm to illustrate this point. Now, you can't see that because it's on a recording, but you can perform that experiment yourself. You will to do so, and voila, your arm raises. By this simple immaterial act of the will, my immaterial soul is able to have an effect on my material body. So what does all of this have to do with angels? Well, like the human soul, angels are, are also immaterial and intellectual. Moreover, they are intellectually more powerful than we are. And as Aquinas notes, what the lower can do, the higher can do in a more powerful way. Thus, he concludes that if our souls are capable of immediately moving bodies, all the more so are angels capable of doing that, albeit in a more powerful way. And I emphasize in a more powerful way because even though a human soul is able to immediately move a body by a simple act of the will, it's limited in its ability to do this. My soul can't immediately move just any old body. Rather, it can immediately move only one body in that way, namely my body, to which it is uniquely joined. Unlike a human soul, however, an angel isn't joined to any body. It is a pure form, a pure spirit. With its greater power, then, an angel has the ability to move each and any body that there is. Still, Aquinas adds, because an angel is a finite being, it can't move all bodies at once, but only one at a time. Now, here we begin to see an answer to how an angel can be said to be in a place 
even though it isn't a physical being. Although an angel is not in a place as though contained by its surrounding area, the bodies that it can act upon are themselves so contained. With that in mind, Aquinas explains that an angel can be said to be in a place inasmuch as it applies its power to a physical thing that is itself located in some place. So let's consider again that famous pin. If it were lying on the table and an angel chose to apply its power to the pin's head, moving it across the table by a mere act of its will, we could say that the angel is in that particular place. As Aquinas puts it, the angel would be there virtually, from the Latin word virtus, meaning power. But he's careful to add that the place where the angel would be located would not contain that angel as it contains the pin. To the contrary, we would be better to say that what is contained is in fact the place itself, contained namely by the angel, the way our bodies can be said to be contained by our souls. When considered in this respect, it is possible for an angel to be on the head of a pin. But is it possible for more than one angel to fit there? As before, Aquinas doesn't directly answer this question for us. He does, however, explain that more than one angel cannot be in the same place at the same time. In other words, more than one cannot apply its power to that same place simultaneously. The reason is that two complete causes of the same order can't act on the same area at the same time. They could do so only if their modes of causality were in different orders. For example, both God and an angel could act on the same place at the same time because each would act as a cause in a different respect. If we consider again the head of our pin, God would be present there as causing the pin's very existence and sustaining it in existence, whereas the angel would be present as causing its motion through space. But two angels could not be present there simultaneously because both would be complete causes in the same respect, namely of motion. So if we take the pin's head as a single place, and if we speak in terms of an angel's virtual presence on it, virtual meaning in terms of its power, we get a new answer to our question regarding how many angels can fit there. Only one. Still, we need to be careful not to have a limited vision here. The head of a pin may be quite small, but it still has parts to it, for example, a left half and a right half. In this respect, it can be treated as consisting of more than one place, and different angels could thus apply their respective powers to each place. In this way, at least two angels could be on the head of a pin. In fact, the pin's head could be divided further in terms of top and bottom, allowing for four places where four angels could be present. How many divisions could we make? Considering the nature of a surface area, Aquinas notes any surface contains an infinite number of points. Does that mean that he would say an infinite number of angels could be on the pin's head by means of their power? Well, in fact, no, in part because that infinitude of points on the pin's head are only potentially present and not all actually so, but 
also in part because he thinks there cannot be an actually infinite number of creatures. Both of these are physical and metaphysical points too complex for me to examine here. Suffice it to say, Aquinas would hold that a pin could be actually divided into an extremely large, uh, a pin's head could be divided into an extremely large number of actual places where an angel could be present by its power. So many so that, whereas the number of angels would be fewer than an infinite set, that possible number is clearly greater than one and, in fact, would be extraordinarily large. Indeed, it seems that given Aquinas' account of the divisibility of a physical surface, the number of locations could allow for as many angels as God has in fact created, a number, Aquinas tells us, that must be far beyond all material magnitude. So as it turns out, we've seen that there are three different ways to answer the question, how many angels can fit on the head of a pin? If we consider the physical presence that they could have there, we found that the answer is zero. If we consider the virtual presence in terms of power that angels could have there, and if we treat the head of a pin as a single place, we found that the answer is one. But if we consider the number of places that are potentially located on the head of the pin, we found that the number of angels that could, be, that could fit there would be exceedingly great and, in the course of attempting to answer this question, we learn something both about the nature of angels and their relationship to the world. Now, I've provided here merely a brief sketch of Aquinas' philosophical account of the angels. In his writings, of course, he goes into much greater detail about their inner life and their role in the universe. Unfortunately, to the contemporary mind, talking about these immaterial beings at all sounds like so much nonsense. The very term immaterial has become synonymous with the words irrelevant and insignificant. But a sincere reading of Aquinas's works reveals that this attitude is all too dismissive. For believing Christians, considering the angels is both relevant and significant to one's faith. But in addition, considering them is also relevant and significant for us as human beings. For as Aquinas frequently reminds us with the words of Aristotle, all human beings by nature desire to know. Given the great ladder of being that we encounter in this world, therefore, it's perfectly natural that we should wish to raise our intellects above a consideration of material beings to contemplate one's that are immaterial, to contemplate those beings that we call the angels. <laughs>